0: this podcast details true crime cases it contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence it is not intended for children listener discretion is advised thank you for joining me for today's episode of once upon a crime murders are solved in a variety of different ways Sometimes, to solve the crime, investigators may be able to rely on eyewitness testimony. Sometimes, the killer may confess. But most of the time, enough pieces of circumstantial evidence have to be gathered to identify the perpetrator and solve the crime. These types of cases hinge on the meticulous analysis of forensic evidence and expert detective work. But how does the law go about solving a murder without a body? Without a body... How can it be proven that a murder was committed in the first place? It is rare that detectives can prove a murder happened and get a conviction when no body is recovered, but it has happened. In this month's series, Body of Evidence, I will share fascinating cases where crack detective work, dedicated prosecutors, and a bit of luck solve some of the most baffling murder cases on record. In this first episode, a young woman goes missing without a trace detectives zero in on a suspect right away, but without a body, a murder weapon, or even a definite crime scene, investigators would have their work cut out for them to charge and convict her killer to get justice for the victim and her family. This is chapter one of Body of Evidence, the disappearance of Anne Marie Fahey. In 1993, Anne-Marie Fahey's life was on an upswing. The 26-year-old had recently graduated with a degree in political science from Wesley College. Her degree and her fluency in Spanish landed her a Washington DC internship as a translator. In 1992, back home in Delaware, she was hired as a receptionist for Congressman Tom Carper. Young, beautiful, bright and energetic, Anne-Marie was swept up in the excitement when her boss ran for governor in 1992. She worked on his campaign, knocking on doors, sending out mailings, answering phones, and whatever else she was asked to do. She saw Carper as a good man and was thrilled when he won the election. She was even more thrilled when he asked her to work for him in the governor's office as his scheduling secretary. Her job was exciting and prestigious and paid a decent salary, although she still had to watch her budget closely. Anne-Marie had wonderful relationships with her siblings, their spouses, and children, and a great number of friends who she spent nights out with, vacationed with, and who occasionally set her up on dates. Life was full of promise for Anne-Marie. But not all was perfect. Anne-Marie had just lost her grandmother, Catherine McGettigan, who she called Nan, the previous winter. In her diary, Anne-Marie wrote that losing her grandmother was, quote, the most tragic part of my life. She was the most reliable, stable, sober adult person in my life. A part of me died with Nan." The other piece missing in Anne-Marie's life was a steady romantic partner. She and her college boyfriend of three years had broken up before graduation, and she'd not dated anyone seriously since then. But Anne-Marie's social calendar was still full. She enjoyed socializing with her friends, some she'd known since she was a child, and she certainly had dates just nothing that had become serious. But Anne-Marie wasn't in a hurry to meet someone as she was enjoying her life as a young single woman. She was grateful for all she did have because the truth was, life had not always been so good for Anne-Marie Fahey. Sinead Fahey was born on January 27, 1966, in Wilmington, Delaware. She was the youngest child of Robert Fahey and Kathleen McGedigan Fahey. There were six children in the Fahey family. Kevin was the firstborn in 1954, and the next four, Mark, Robert Jr., Brian, and Kathleen, came in quick succession with just one or two years in between each birth. Anne Marie, the baby of the family, made her entrance into the world six years after her only sister Kathy, and she was a surprise. The Fahys were Irish Catholics, of which there was a large population in Wilmington. They attended Mass faithfully, and each of the children dutifully performed the traditions and sacraments of the Catholic Church, learning the Catechism, attending Confession each week, and receiving Communion on Sundays. The first years of Anne Marie's life were fairly uneventful. Her father Robert sold insurance to support his family, and her mother stayed home and cared for her large brood. But when Annie was just nine years old, her mother was diagnosed with lung cancer, and her health quickly deteriorated. Kathleen Fahey died in 1975 at the young age of 45. Her husband was despondent after her death and overwhelmed at being left alone to care for his children. All but Annie were in their teens, and Kevin, the oldest, was 20 when they lost their mother. The children needed stability and a safe place to grieve her death, but Robert Fahey could provide neither. Always a bit of a drinker, after his wife's death, he quickly spiraled into full-blown alcoholism. Eventually, his addiction would prevent him from successfully holding down a job, and he became unemployed. Once his own insurance and pension plan payments ran out, there wasn't enough money coming in to pay the bills. The older Fahey children had jobs, so they could at least provide some food for the household and their own clothing. But Annie, still in grade school, was completely dependent on others. She had to rely on her siblings, and sometimes on friends and neighbors who felt sorry for the Fahey children, to provide her with food and clothing. This would always be a sore spot and source of shame in Anne Marie's life. She never wanted to feel like a burden on others, and would rather do without than accept handouts. The situation became more dire as Annie grew up. Her father not only continued to drink, but became verbally abusive, taking out his sadness and rage on his youngest daughter. When he was drunk, he'd call Anne Marie names and ridicule her. She was called fat and ugly by her father. As she reached her teens, he'd also call her a slut. Annie was none of these things. She was a beautiful, athletic girl who focused on her schoolwork and dreamed of being a teacher someday. If anything, Annie was too serious for her age. She'd had to grow up fast and also learn to be resourceful as she never knew what challenges life might bring next. There were months at a time when, with no money coming in, the family was unable to afford basic necessities like food or electricity. There would be no hot water service in the home for months, and Annie would get to school early to take a hot shower in the gym before classes began. Another time, The Fahy's phone service was cut off for an entire year for lack of payment. Annie's older siblings were able to escape by going off to college on grants and scholarships. All the Fahy children were bright and hardworking. Finally, only Annie and her youngest brother Brian were left home with their father. Brian and her other siblings tried to do as much as they could to help little Annie, but providing clothing and food for their youngest sister was haphazard, according to Brian. Quote, We tried to look out for each other as best we could, he told author Anne Rule, and get by. We all just sort of hung in there together, he said of himself and his siblings. The one stable person in her life was Annie's maternal grandmother, Catherine McGettigan. Catherine, or Nan, was a strong woman, but she was also a widow who had to work full time. She lived a half an hour away from her grandchildren in Pennsylvania, but came once a week to cook for them and clean the house. It was to Nan that Annie looked for support, encouragement, and stability. However, even with Nan, Annie didn't want to be a burden and said little about the abuse she was suffering at home with her father. Annie became very close to her sister Catherine, who was her surrogate mother figure. Catherine had just been 14 years old when her mother died. She had taken over caring for her little sister as best she could. In the 1980s, the Fahys were evicted from their home after their father defaulted on the mortgage. With her older siblings in college, Annie was offered a temporary place to live by a family friend, Carol Creighton. Now in high school, Annie was grateful that she would be able to continue attending Brandywine High, but felt like an intruder and a burden to Carol and her family. She became excessively neat, not wanting to cause any extra work for her host family, a habit that would stay with her for the rest of her life. Annie ate very little well with the Craytons, also not wanting to become a burden. All of these early life traumas, and Annie's responses to them, would lead to lifelong emotional and psychological scars. She would experience anxiety, depression, a near-obsessive need to keep her surroundings neat and orderly, and her rationing of food would devolve into a serious eating disorder as a young adult. The situation at the Craytons was only temporary, so in her junior year of high school, Annie returned briefly to live with her father and Brian in Newark, Delaware. Brian took it upon himself to drive his sister 15 miles each way so she could continue attending school in Wilmington. In addition to her schoolwork, Annie spent her after-school hours waiting tables so she'd have money to help her brother with gas and to purchase clothes. Towards the end of her junior year, her brothers Kevin and Robert were able to pool their money and purchased a house in Wilmington. It was near Annie's school, And they asked her to come live with them. She once again was grateful to her siblings for looking out for her. Annie graduated in 1984 and enrolled in Wesley College in Dover. In her second year, she transferred to the University of Delaware. Later that same year, her father died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 64. All the combined losses in Anne Marie's life now took their toll on her. Losing her mother, grandmother, home, and now her father, caused her to fall into a depression. She dropped out of college. Annie moved in with her brother Brian, to whom she'd always been close. At this time, Annie made the wise decision to begin therapy. Now able to discuss her pain and grief with a professional who could help and support her, Annie learned new coping skills and gained awareness of how the trauma she'd experienced affected her feelings about herself. Some of these issues Anne-Marie experienced would be described by her therapist years later in court. As quote, codependency issues, turns to conflict to avoid depression, emotionally fragile, feels powerless, self-esteem issues, struggling with a deeply held fear of abandonment, a sense of aloneness, frightened of hurting others, and fear of rejection. Yet Anne-Marie Fahey drew upon all her inner strength, talents, and determination to carve out a promising life for herself. She returned to college, deciding she was happiest at the smaller campus of Wesley College. It was from there that she graduated with her degree in 1992, before working her way up to the governor's office. All could have, should have, continued on in a positive forward-moving trajectory for Anne-Marie, but for one chance encounter. Anne-Marie couldn't know that to a predator like Thomas Capano, the wounds of Anne-Marie's past would call to him like a shark, who senses fresh blood in the water. Thomas Joseph Capano was the oldest son in a family of five children. His father, Louis Capano Sr., was a self-made man. Born in Calabria, Italy, his parents emigrated to Delaware in the 1930s. His father was a bricklayer, and Louis took to the construction trade as well, becoming a carpenter. He met his wife, Marguerite, and they moved into an apartment in Wilmington's Little Italy neighborhood. Their first child was a daughter, Marion, followed by Thomas, and then three more sons, Louis Jr., Joseph, and Gerard. Lewis co-founded a construction company and was just in time to take advantage of the demand for housing after World War II. Louis Capano and his partner developed entire neighborhoods of good, solid homes for families who were moving to the Wilmington area to work for the DuPont Company. As the business grew and became profitable, Lou Capano was able to build a large colonial-style mansion on Weldon Road in Brandywine 100. As teens, the Capano children, the boys in particular, were given the best of everything by their parents. However, they were expected to work in the family construction business, spending summers hauling materials and scrapping out work sites. But Thomas, or Tommy, as the oldest, was the least interested in becoming an employee of Capano & Sons. Tommy was always a scholar of the family and was allowed to spend less time swinging a hammer and more time hitting the books. He attended Archmere Academy, a Catholic prep school. Tom Capano was never an A student, but he was popular and athletic, serving as student body president of his high school and becoming one of Archmere Academy's star football players. Everyone in town knew the Capano boys as privileged and popular. They drove sports cars gifted to them by their parents. Tom, it was said, was always his parents' favorite child. His father was beyond proud when Tommy was accepted to Boston College, a privilege he himself had never been afforded. While in college, Tom Capano met Kay Ryan, and they married in 1972. Kay graduated the following spring and began working as a public health nurse. Tom completed his degree and then entered law school. His parents supported him and his bride and paid their bills and Tom's tuition. Kay, however, loved her work and for some time would be the only one gainfully employed in their family of two. Kay was smart and beautiful and had been raised in a traditional Irish Catholic family. She always deferred to her husband and treated him like a king. The only thing she never acquiesced to was having a job. Tom would have liked her to stay home and focus on taking care of him and their home, but since they did not have any children in their first five years of marriage, she preferred to work. Kate even returned to school to earn a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in order to further her career. After passing the bar and completing an internship, Tom Capano took a job in the public defender's office, eventually becoming a prosecutor for Newcastle County. Tom's brothers, Louis Jr. and Joseph, had both dropped out of college to work in the family business. Lou secured a real estate license and exhibited a knack for making deals to purchase properties that Capano and Sons developed into money-making projects. He was able to secure the Branmar Plaza in Brandywine 100 and the Midway Shopping Center in Milltown. Joey managed the construction sites and crew. The company also built and managed office buildings and apartment complexes, and the Capano's wealth grew. Lou Jr. and Sr. ventured out to the shore, purchasing oceanfront property in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Lou Jr. would build a beach house in Stone Harbor for his family, with a view of the Atlantic Ocean. After two years in the prosecutor's office, Tom Capano took a job in the private sector. He was making more money now, and he and Kay bought their first home, not one built by Capano & Sons, however, but a large 1920s-era home located on the corner of 17th and Greenhill in Wilmington. In 1980, Louis Capano Sr. died, leaving his business and estate to his wife, Lou Jr., Joey, and Tommy. Jerry, his youngest son, had proven to be a bit of a wild child and irresponsible, so he and his sister Marion, who, in her father's view, would marry and be supported by her husband, only received a monthly allowance, but enough to see that they were well taken care of financially. Marguerite Capano now became dependent on her son Tom to handle her financial concerns and other affairs. Tom had always been considered the good son by Marguerite. Since she'd first married, She'd depended on her husband to handle their finances and pay the bills. Now she trusted only Tom to take over these duties, and he did so faithfully. In 1980, Tom and Kay had their first child, Christy. She would be the first of four daughters born to the couple. Katie was added to the family in 1982, Jenny in 1983, and Alexandra in 1985. In 1984, Tom Capano, who'd been made a partner in his law firm, took a pay cut to accept a job as Wilmington's city solicitor. Of course, he didn't have to worry about finances. He had plenty of money left to him by his father, as well as shares of Capano and sons, and the family business was still making money hand over fist. Capano had campaigned for Dan Frawley, who became mayor of Wilmington in 1984. In 1986, he was offered the prestigious position as Frawley's chief of staff. Tom Capano exuded self-confidence and was viewed as charming and intelligent. It also didn't hurt that he had the Capano family fortune at his disposal and was able to give generously to political candidates. In 1990, the governor of Delaware, impressed with Thomas Capano's work for Mayor Frawley, offered him the job of chief counsel. Capano would serve in the governor's office for only two years before returning to the private sector, where he would become a partner in a law firm that was the bond counsel for the state of Delaware. In this position, he was able to use his many political connections to his advantage. He also made a very good salary. His work at the law firm of Saul Ewing would bring him into a collision course with a beautiful young brunette by the name of Anne-Marie Fahey in the spring of 1993. Thomas Capano first laid eyes on Anne Marie Fehi at a fundraiser for the Women's Democratic Club. His wife Kay was supposed to attend, but was ill, so Thomas went in her place. Anne Marie wasn't hard to miss. Standing five foot ten inches tall, with long curly brunette hair, a trim figure, and dimpled smile, she was a beauty in her prime. Thomas Capano was forty seven years old but still youthful. He was also charismatic and could be charming. Anne-Marie met a lot of high-profile and charming men in her job as scheduling secretary for the governor, so while Tom Capano seemed nice, she wasn't overly taken with him at first. Capano's job brought him to the governor's office now and again, and he now made it a habit of stopping by Anne-Marie's desk to chat. He began to draw out details of Annie's life, about her siblings, her friends, and she appreciated his interest in her. She saw him as an older man who gave good advice and seemed to genuinely want to be helpful, and she liked that about him. He began to invite her to lunch so they could talk more, and Anne-Marie accepted. Their casual friendship continued through the spring and summer of 1993. But in the fall of that year, Capano asked her out to dinner. She mentioned it to her friend, a co-worker, who wondered if he didn't have a romantic interest in Anne-Marie. Lunch was one thing, but dinner was definitely a date, her friend told her. Anne went anyway, And later confided that Tom Capano had kissed her when he dropped her off at her apartment. However, Anne-Marie was still dating others. Perhaps that first kiss was something she had considered a mistake. But Tom Capano began using all his charm to woo Anne-Marie. He had gotten her to share more personal details about her life, about losing her mother so young, her father's drinking, and growing up poor, by acting like a concerned friend. Armed with this information, Capano was able to become what Anne-Marie needed most, a caring father figure who showered her with attention. He often gifted her things he knew she needed or wanted, but couldn't afford, money for car repairs or a new handbag. Anne-Marie always refused these gifts, but Tommy, as she called him, always insisted. Anne-Marie kept a journal with her most personal and private thoughts from the time she was a teen. She wrote many entries in the fall and winter of 1993-94 about Thomas Capano. In January of 1994, an entry written on her 28th birthday confessed that she was, quote, in love with Thomas Capano. Anne-Marie never wrote his full name in her journal, often referring to Capano as he or him or Tomas, the Spanish version of Thomas. Of course, Anne-Marie knew that Thomas Capano was married and the father of four children. Having an affair with a married man went against all the morals and principles she'd grown up with as a committed Catholic and just a good person. She was deeply conflicted. On the one hand, she believed she had fallen in love with Thomas Capano, and yet she was ashamed of carrying on an illicit affair. She told no one except one or two very close friends that she had become romantically involved with the attorney. Of course, her family had no idea, and never even heard the name Thomas Capano come out of Anne Marie's mouth. But once they began a sexual relationship, Thomas Capano began to be possessive and controlling towards Anne-Marie. He called her incessantly and often criticized her about one thing or another. Her car was too old and unreliable. He wanted to buy her a new limited edition Lexus, but she refused to accept it. Her friends were bad influences, according to him, and he didn't understand why she'd want to hang out with them when she could be with him. She didn't eat enough, he said, so he'd insist on whisking her out of town to join him at expensive restaurants. By this time, Capano was aware that Anne-Marie had an eating disorder. Stress often resulted in Anne eating even less. Still, he insisted on buying her meals, which she didn't want. He would then make her feel guilty for wasting his money, another one of her hot-button issues. By April, just months after beginning the affair, Anne-Marie realized that Tom Capano was trying to control her and decided to end things. She wrote in her journal on April 26th that she'd ended the relationship. However, she would blame herself, writing, quote, Our relationship is finished. I know it's my problem and my fault. Unquote. But Capano wouldn't let her go. Two days later, he called to say he couldn't live without her. He began calling several times a day. When she refused to answer his calls, He sent flowers with a note that said he needed only her in his life and decided to leave his family to be with her. This terrified Anne-Marie. She never wanted to be the cause of a marriage to break up and felt tremendous guilt that she had ever even begun the affair. She begged him not to leave his wife, saying it wouldn't make her change her mind anyway. Capano did back off, at least for a while. Anne-Marie was able to get away that summer when she received some money from her grandmother's estate. She and her brother Brian thought the best way to spend the money and honor their nan's memory was to take a trip to Ireland to visit the town where she'd been born. Anne-Marie and Brian tracked down some of their distant relatives. She had a great time and felt relaxed and happy in August when she returned home. She was now living by herself for the first time. She had been able to afford a small place of her own without roommates, and she loved her cozy little apartment. She threw herself into her job once again. But before long, Tom Capano began to stop by her office to see her once again. However, this time he played it cool and seemed to have gotten the hint that she no longer wanted a romantic relationship with him. When she broke up with him, Anne-Marie told Tom that she still cared about him as a friend. Anne-Marie always had trouble saying what she really felt because she didn't want to hurt others' feelings. Capano knew this and used it to wedge himself back into her life over and over again. For a time, he reverted to the Tom she had first met, the nice man who was kind and caring and a good friend to her. Anne had begun dating a man her age just before she left to Ireland. She liked him quite a lot, but when she returned, he had moved on and she realized he didn't care for her as much as she did for him. Rejection had always made Anne feel unworthy and unloved, a throwback from her chaotic childhood with an alcoholic father. Tom Capano re-entered her life at a time when she was once again feeling vulnerable, and sensing this, he had wormed his way back into her life. Before long, Anne realized she had made another mistake. Capano was even more possessive now. Now that she lived alone, he thought nothing of showing up at her apartment uninvited whenever he felt like it. Feeling too guilty to make him leave, Anne almost always allowed him to come in. Anne-Marie thought if she was nice to Capano, She could let him down gently, but every time she tried to distance herself from him, he would work on her guilt, saying she'd wrecked his marriage, that he couldn't live without her, and even that he was suicidal. She didn't know how to extricate herself from Capano without hurting him, and Anne Marie could never bring herself to hurt anyone. Then, in January of 1995, the therapist Anne had been seeing for over three years was killed in a car accident. Anne Marie's therapist had been a person she had depended on for emotional support, and now she felt completely alone. She turned to Tom Capano, who had always come running whenever she needed him, and even when she didn't. But once Anne Marie felt lost and vulnerable and reached out to him, Capano changed his tune. He now acted coldly towards her. She tried to reach him repeatedly, but he ignored her calls. He made her wait for a week before finally calling her back. By this time, Anne-Marie was despondent and had slipped back into depression. When Capano came back into her life this time, she gave in to his demands just to have his support. He began making decisions about which of her friends she could see, how she spent her time, and she began jumping to answer whenever he called. But feeling cocky now, Capano overplayed his hand he tried to talk Anne into quitting her job at the governor's office. He said he'd secured a position for her at Capano and Sons as his brother's personal assistant. Since the job was located in North Wilmington, he said she should move, and he offered to pay her rent in a new apartment. He also said he'd worked it out, so she'd be paid the same salary she was making working for the governor. At this, Anne-Marie balked. She woke out of her stupor she'd been in since the tragic death of her therapist, and realized that Capano was trying to control her entire life. He'd started complaining not only about her friends, but also her apartment and her car. In his eyes, everything in her life was subpar. She could have so much more if she just let him help her, he said. He also began to criticize her clothes. He got angry if he thought her skirt was too short, her outfit too tight. In addition, he wanted to replace her clothes by buying her a new expensive wardrobe. This she would also not let him do. Then Capano discovered a new way to track Anne-Marie. He began to send emails, several a day, from his law office to her government email account. He'd often dictate how she should spend her time on any given evening or weekend, basically wanting her to revolve her schedule around whatever time he could get away from his wife and family. If she didn't respond right away to his emails, he'd become angry. For some time, Capano had been cajoling Anne Marie into taking a trip with him. While she was attempting to see less of him, his non-stop harassment was so exhausting that she often gave in just to make it stop. She finally agreed to spend a weekend with Capano at a resort in Virginia. Almost immediately upon their arrival, she realized that this had also been a mistake. Capano kept up a non-stop stream of criticism at Anne and became angry and verbally abusive if she wasn't paying 100% of her attention to only him. They ended up arguing a lot during the trip, and Anne-Marie couldn't wait to leave. The more unhappy she became by his jealous and controlling behavior, the more he accused her of being ungrateful and ruining his life. It became glaringly obvious to Anne that she and Capano had nothing in common. She knew that she must end things once and for all with him. Around this time, Anne complained to a friend that Capano was, quote, a possessive-controlling maniac, unquote. So she was horrified when soon after returning from the trip, Capano said he'd decided to leave his wife. This, she thought, was a disaster. She was trying to break things off with him, and if he left his wife, she'd never be rid of him. This, however, was just another manipulation on the part of Tom Capano. The truth was, he had already walked out on his wife of 23 years earlier that summer. He had been living at his brother Lou's mansion in Greenville. Tom continued to work on Anne-Marie, barraging her with calls, drop-in visits, and emails. But in September, she put her foot down and told him she would only see him on a platonic basis. She still couldn't bring herself to completely cut him out of her life, even though she wanted to. He became enraged and told her he'd left his wife for her and now his life was ruined and it was all her fault. She reminded him that she begged him not to make decisions based on her and that she never asked him to leave his wife. Anne-Marie began ignoring his calls and emails and instead spent even more time with her family and friends. She and her brothers and sisters had always been close, and now that her siblings were marrying and having families, Annie loved spending time in their homes and being Aunt Annie to her nieces and nephews. Her brother, Kevin, had married and was a financial planner for Allstate Insurance. Robert Jr. had become a commercial mortgage banker and was also married. Brian, married to Rebecca, was a teacher and a coach at the Friends School, and Kathleen had married Patrick Hosey and worked as a clinical coordinator of education at the Bryn Mawr Rehab Hospital. Mark Fahey, the second oldest in the family, perhaps affected more greatly by his early life trauma, had trouble with drugs and alcohol since he was a teen. He had been in and out of rehab and he and his wife, Debbie, had divorced, but Anne was particularly close to Mark's son, Brian, perhaps because of his father's challenges. Anne had a standing date with her little nephew to have dinner with him every Monday night. Anne-Marie filled her calendar with visits to her family as much to enjoy being with them as to avoid Thomas Capano. Soon, however, another name would begin to show up on her calendar. In September of 1995, Anne-Marie's boss, Governor Carper, introduced her to a young man he thought she would like. His name was Michael Scanlon, and he was a 30-year-old executive with MBNA America Bank. In his position, Mike was responsible for providing grants to charitable organizations. Indeed, he had spent his life devoted to helping others and had personally mentored troubled kids through a charitable organization he was involved with. Mike was one of seven children from a large Irish Catholic family, just like Anne-Marie. He was six foot two and handsome, owned his own home, and had never been married. He seemed like a perfect match for Anne-Marie, and they hit it off immediately. By October, they were dating regularly. Mike was also someone she could take home to her family, and when she did, he fit in perfectly. It didn't take long for Anne-Marie to begin feeling the first pangs of love for Scanlon. However... He was old fashioned and a committed Catholic. He didn't believe in rushing into a relationship and wasn't looking to become physical with a woman until marriage, or at least not until he was engaged. Anne Marie respected and admired Mike, and they spent many wonderful evenings and weekends together, socializing with family and friends, attending charitable events, and just enjoying each other's company. She hoped he was falling for her because she definitely was falling for him. There was just one problem that Anne could foresee and that was Tom Capano. She was terrified that if Mike ever found out about her affair with the married man, he would end the relationship. And she definitely didn't want Tom Capano to find out about her new love, lest he threaten her with revealing their secret. Although happier than she'd ever been with a man, Anne-Marie was also extremely stressed as Tom was still calling and trying to win her back. Her eating disorder became exacerbated by stress, and now she began to lose weight at an alarming rate. Capano did find out about Mike and did threaten to reveal their affair. Anne continued to try and hold him off by remaining friendly, but trying to be in his presence as little as possible. For a time, she would only communicate with Capano by email. She hoped that with less contact, he might get tired of trying to see her and give up. Her friends noticed how unhealthy Anne Marie began to appear. By April of 1996, her eating disorder was out of control. She was taking up to fifteen laxatives a day and keeping to a diet of under 200 daily calories. The five foot ten Anne Marie wrote in her journal at that time, quote, "I was diagnosed with bulimia. My weight is currently 125 pounds, pretty skinny, but I want more." Unquote. When her friend expressed her concern and asked if Tom Copano's harassment wasn't making her sick, Anne answered, "I can't control him." but I can control what I put in my body. On April 7, 1996, Anne-Marie Fahey had finally told Tom Capano in no uncertain terms that they were over. She wrote, I have finally brought closure to Tom Capano, one of the only times she wrote out his entire name in her journal. What a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. For one whole year, I allowed someone to take control of every decision of my life. Anne-Marie was ready to move on. She and Mike were happy and had a great relationship. She had a great job, good friends, and family that loved her. Thomas Capano, she decided, was in her past. But just two weeks later, Capano emailed her saying that his daughter Katie was having brain surgery. Anne-Marie, feeling badly upon hearing this news and concerned about the little girl, called Capano to say how sorry she was and to see how his daughter was doing. This was all Capano needed to wedge himself back into Annie's life once again. However, it was a lie. His daughter Katie had only fainted during a basketball game and gone for a brain scan just to be safe. She was totally fine and healthy. Tom Capano now began acting like no time had passed and that he and Anne-Marie were still together. She, however, stopped answering his messages after she realized that his daughter was okay. Now Capano began calling a few of Anne's friends he was acquainted with to ask about her health. Acting like a concerned friend, he pressed them to have dinner with him and Anne-Marie, although she had not agreed to see him. Feeling pressured and wanting him to stop calling her friends, Anne-Marie finally agreed to meet him for dinner on May 30th. She thought that if she told him in person that it was really over, he'd finally let her go. But the dinner had the opposite effect. Afterward, Capano's attentions towards her only increased. He sent Anne-Marie cards and letters with money enclosed, stopped by her apartment multiple times, and generally made himself a nuisance. She was constantly afraid that he would ruin her relationship with Mike Scanlon or tell her family about their affair. Anne-Marie's stress level skyrocketed, and her weight dipped to just 117 pounds. On June 12th, Anne-Marie fainted at work. She didn't want her co-workers or Mike to know how serious her eating disorder had become. The only one who did know the full extent of her illness was Tom Capano. She called him and asked if he could pick her up from work and take her home, as she was still feeling dizzy and lightheaded. Tom Capano had already convinced himself that he had Anne-Marie back, and in his mind, this was confirmation. Now he decided that Anne-Marie would be his forever. But here's the thing, as obsessed as Tom Capano was with Anne-Marie Fahey, going so far as he told her to leave his wife to be with her, this was untrue. In fact, Anne-Marie was not the only woman he had been seeing behind his wife's back. Astonishingly, by the time he met Anne-Marie, Capano had been having a 12-year affair with a woman named Debbie McIntyre. He'd had a standing Wednesday night date with Debbie for years, even while he was seeing Anne-Marie. As well, during the months when he was so incessantly stalking and harassing Anne-Marie, Tom Capano was also carrying on a torrid sexual affair with a third woman named Susan. In addition, he'd become infatuated with a fourth woman who worked in his law office. He'd offered to set her up an apartment and secure a job for her in his brother's company, the same offer Anne-Marie had refused. The woman was a single mother, and Capano even offered to pay for private school for her kids. His controlling nature quickly became too much for the young mother to take, and she broke off the relationship. Luckily, she had more luck shaking Tom Capano off than Anne-Marie had. It appeared that Capano wanted to have different mistresses all over town to spend his evenings with. For quite some time, he tried to get Anne-Marie to agree to keep every Thursday night open for him, but she refused. He already had Debbie locked down on Wednesdays and some weekends. I guess he was looking to fill the other days of the week. But Debbie McIntyre had been having an affair with Tom Capano since 1980. Debbie, like Anne-Marie, had had a chaotic home life as a child. Her mother suffered from severe emotional issues and had an episode for which she was hospitalized when Debbie was just two years old. She and her brother were shuttled off to live with their grandparents while her mother remained in the hospital for six months. When she returned... Debbie's father said it was too stressful for their mother to have the children around. He moved himself and his wife into another house, leaving his children behind. They were allowed to see their mother only for short visits, and their father all but abandoned them. Her mother also became dependent on drugs and alcohol. Debbie married and had two children. Her husband was one of the partners in the law firm where Tom Capano was first hired as a young attorney. She met him in 1977, and by 1980, He'd convinced Debbie that he was in love with her, and they began an affair. She and her husband divorced in 1983, and since that time, her only relationship had been with Tom Capano. Capano expected her to be available to him whenever he called, and Debbie was. She would do anything for him. When he left his wife, he told Debbie he'd done it for her, and she was thrilled. He explained, however, that he would have to wait a respectable amount of time before they could be together publicly at least 18 months, so as not to embarrass his wife and children. Kay Capano had been friends with Debbie McIntyre since their husbands worked together over 15 years before. Kay had no idea about his affair with Debbie or about any of the affairs her husband engaged in during their 23-year marriage. When Tom Capano left his wife, he rented a house located at 2302 North Grand Avenue, which was within walking distance to his soon-to-be ex-wife's house but it was also near Debbie McIntyre's house and just a three-minute drive to Anne-Marie's apartment. Even though he'd walked out on her, Capano would enter Kay's home whenever he felt like it. When she told him that this was unacceptable, he told her it was his house and he could come and go as he pleased. Once, to make his point, he showed up on a night when Kay was hosting a dinner party for her friends. Without saying a word, Capano walked in the front door, took a seat on the couch near his ex took off his shoes, and placed his feet in her lap. Her friends looked on in shock at his rudeness, and Kay was humiliated. Even though Tom Capano had Debbie McIntyre at his beck and call, his ex-wife under his thumb, and his sexual relationship with still another woman, he remained obsessed with Anne-Marie. Thomas Capano had never been told that he couldn't do something or have something he wanted in his life. That Anne-Marie had rejected him, telling him she no longer wanted to see him, was unacceptable to him. In his mind, Anne-Marie was his, and he wasn't about to let her go. Anne-Marie couldn't know that Tom Capano had a plan to make her either agree to continue their relationship or pay with her life for rejecting him. Saturday, June 22, 1996, began the last weekend of 30-year-old Anne-Marie Fahey's life. On that day, she went shopping with her sister Kathleen. Browsing in one of her favorite clothing stores, Talbot's, she tried on a pantsuit that she loved. But when her sister looked at the price tag, it was $300. Anne-Marie was tempted to buy it anyway, but her sister scolded her, and Anne-Marie got annoyed. She didn't buy the outfit. By the end of the shopping trip, the matter had been dropped and the sisters ended the day on a good note. On Wednesday the 26th, Anne-Marie spoke with her good friend Kim Horstman. Kim was one of the only friends that she had confided to about her affair with Tom Capano, as well as her ongoing problems with him. But on this day, Kim said that her friend was happy and upbeat. Anne-Marie shared that she'd had dinner at Mike's house the previous Sunday. She expressed how happy she was with Mike and how good he was for her. She had gained two pounds, she told Kim, and was hopeful that she was getting her eating disorder under control. On Wednesday night, Anne spoke with Mike on the telephone. They made plans to have dinner with her brother Robert and sister-in-law Susan at their home on Saturday. She told Mike she was taking Friday off work. She wanted a day for herself, she said, to run some errands. She was also planning to take a book she'd been wanting to read to Brandywine Park, one of her favorite spots to unwind. Unknown to anyone, Anne-Marie had continued to respond to Tom Capano's emails. She kept a friendly tone with him, but also kept him at arm's length. She no longer loved him and wasn't interested in seeing him romantically, but was trying to be kind about it. He'd been a friend to her in the past, and she didn't want to hurt him or be ungrateful for what he'd done for her. But Anne-Marie knew that if she gave him any encouragement, things would most likely end up badly, so she restricted communication with him through email only but Tom Capano had not given up. He'd continued to badger and cajole Anne, saying it was only fair for her to see him at least once in person. He most likely knew that, like in the past, if he kept up the pressure, Anne-Marie would eventually give in and agree to see him. So on that Wednesday evening, he emailed her once again to tell her he had something that, quote, would make her smile, end quote. He asked her to dinner that night, He wanted to take her to Panorama Restaurant in Philadelphia. It had been one of his favorite spots to take her to when they were seeing each other. Unknown to her, he had also taken other women there. Tom had always made a big show of treating Anne-Marie to an expensive meal and good wine. He often ordered for the both of them, something that bothered her. As it was, she had difficulty eating very much, and it was stressful for her to see him spend so much on a dinner she could not bring herself to eat. He then insists that the servers wrap up the food she didn't finish and send them home with her. Truth be told, the heavy meals Tom liked to order often made her stomach turn. So Anne-Marie wasn't eager to have dinner with Tom Capano, especially not at a romantic restaurant he'd once taken her to on their dates. She must have begged off somehow, because Tom Capano's last email to Anne-Marie would be logged in at 11.30 a.m. Thursday morning, June 27th. From his message, it was clear that they had not met up the night before. He asked her to please call him as soon as she could. She did not send a return email. Anne-Marie worked her regular schedule at the governor's office on Thursday, leaving about 4.30 p.m. She kept an appointment with her psychiatrist at 5. From there, it's believed, she went home. Thursday, early evening, was the last time anyone ever saw Anne-Marie (laughs) Fahey. On Saturday, June 29th, Mike Scanlon waited to hear from Anne-Marie. They had plans to have dinner at her brother's house. But when he didn't hear from her, he called her brother Robert. Robert said she had not shown up for dinner and it was unlike her to stand them up. She was always so concerned with not hurting anyone's feelings that she never would have just blown off plans without a word. Her sister Kathleen had not heard from her either and was immediately concerned. She went to Anne-Marie's apartment along with a couple of Anne-Marie's friends. They found her car parked outside, but when they knocked, nobody answered. They asked the landlady to unlock Anne-Marie's door that was both locked and deadbolted. When they entered, they found some of Anne-Marie's clothes on the floor and a bag of groceries with fruit and vegetables rotting inside. This, Kathleen knew, was completely out of character for her sister. Anne-Marie never left anything out of place. She was compulsively neat. A cold fear began to prick at Kathleen. One other item that gave Kathleen pause was a gift box that was partially open. She looked inside and saw the pantsuit that Anne-Marie had tried on at Talbot's the previous Saturday. She knew her sister had left the store without purchasing it. Had she later returned for it, she wondered. Kathleen's fear grew when she discovered Anne-Marie's purse and wallet still in her apartment. Her keys, however, were nowhere to be found. Kathleen immediately called the Wilmington Police Department to report her sister missing. Police arrived to take a report, but after searching her apartment, they didn't see much to concern them. They told Kathleen she could file a missing persons report the following day if Anne-Marie had not yet returned. Anne-Marie's family filed a report the next morning. Officers returned to the apartment. By then, her sister had gone through Anne's things looking for any clues of where she might be. She found a stack of letters among her possessions. They appeared to be from someone close to Anne-Marie someone who professed to be in love with her. They had been signed by someone Kathleen had never heard of, Tom Capano. When the detective arrived, Kathleen shared the letters with him. She might not have recognized the name, but Detective Robert Donovan knew it well. Tom Capano was well known in Wilmington, not only to the mayor, but also to many Wilmington police officers and the police chief himself. Tom Capano was well connected to many city and state government officials. From the letters, it was clear that 48-year-old Tom Capano had been seeing the young woman who worked in the governor's office. Her private journal was found in her room. The last entry mentioned Thomas Capano by name. Anne-Marie had written about ending her relationship with Capano, who she called a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. After officers completed their search of Anne-Marie's apartment, Detective Donovan's next stop would be to question Thomas Capano. Early Sunday morning, Detective Bob Donovan arrived at Thomas Capano's rental home. Capano had been asleep, but allowed the officer in and was cooperative in answering his questions. He admitted that he'd last seen Anne-Marie on Thursday evening. He told Donovan he'd picked her up from her apartment around 6.30 and taken her to dinner at Panorama Restaurant. After dinner, they'd stopped at his house briefly. He'd packed up some groceries from his house to give to her and also had a gift for her, he said. The pantsuit he'd ordered from Talbot's. Capano said he'd then driven her to her apartment. He'd entered only briefly carrying the bag of food upstairs. He'd put the groceries on the counter, used the bathroom, and left. Capano reported that he left just before 10 p.m. Donovan told him he was probably the last person to have seen Anne Marie, and when asked where he thought she might be, Capano told the detective that Anne Marie was, quote, an airhead who probably went to the beach for a few days. He said she told him she'd had a big fight with her sister and was upset about this on Thursday night. He also said that she'd recently been suicidal. He went on to explain that Anne-Marie had psychological problems that he had been helping her with. Asked about the nature of his relationship with Anne-Marie, Capano admitted that they had a sexual relationship in the past, but had been just good friends for about the last six months. The detective asked for Capano's permission to search his house. He declined, saying his daughters were asleep upstairs and he didn't want them to be woken up by police officers in their home. It was later determined that this was untrue. They were with their mother that weekend. Donovan said he'd like to come back the following day to conduct a search and Capano told him that that would be fine. But when officers returned on Monday, Capano was not home. Meanwhile, the investigation continued. Anne-Marie's neighbors were interviewed. One said he'd heard someone going up to Anne-Marie's apartment about 10 p.m. on Thursday night. He'd heard just one pair of footsteps, but he didn't think it was Anne-Marie, as he described it as a much heavier step. The server at the Panorama restaurant who had served the couple on Thursday night was tracked down and questioned. Yes, she recognized the two people from photos as the couple she'd served. She said that Anne-Marie had been quiet and appeared to be upset that evening. She'd barely touched her food. The man had ordered for both of them, and when the check came, pulled out his credit card, but gave the sales slip to Anne-Marie to add the tip and sign for them. There had been no activity on Anne-Marie's credit cards or bank account after June 28. Credit card records were also subpoenaed for Tom Capano. The following weekend was the 4th of July. A large search was conducted by officers and Anne-Marie's family and friends in the area surrounding her apartment, including Brandywine Park. A $10,000 reward was announced for information leading to the discovery of her whereabouts. When the media picked up the story that a pretty young woman who worked in the governor's office had gone missing, Anne-Marie's picture and details of her disappearance were reported widely. The FBI was brought in since Anne-Marie's case crossed state lines. She'd gone missing from Wilmington, Delaware, and the last place she was seen was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When phone and credit card records for Thomas Capano were finally retrieved, investigators noticed one interesting purchase. He'd spent $300 on a new rug. When Detective Donovan had interviewed Capano in his home, Capano had told him he'd just recently moved in. All the rugs and furnishings looked brand new to Donovan. Why had Capano needed to purchase a new rug, he wondered. Capano's regular housekeeper was also interviewed. She said she normally came in every other week to clean. But during the first week of July, the week after Anne-Marie had gone missing, Capano asked her to skip the scheduled cleaning that week. He'd called her back three weeks later, and she'd returned to clean. She noticed then that the couch that had been in the living room was gone. In its place were two chairs. The rug in that room was new, and not the one that had been there previously. A search warrant was served for Capano's home on July 31st. Officers noted that the house was spotless. The rug in the living room was pulled up, and the floor underneath was examined, but nothing was found. Donovan had a hunch that the missing furniture and rug held a clue as to what had happened to Anne-Marie Fahey. He ordered the team to go over the living room with a fine-tooth comb. The search yielded just two spots found on a baseboard in the living room that appeared to be blood. They were collected and carefully preserved. Without a body, there was still no sample of Anne-Marie's blood to compare them to. Forensic DNA testing was still in its infancy, and the only other samples they could use for comparison would be Anne-Marie's parents, who are both deceased. DNA from her siblings could not provide a DNA match with the testing capabilities available at that time. It appeared that the investigation had hit a wall. But because of Anne-Marie's giving nature, it was discovered that she donated blood regularly. Investigators were able to track down what remained of her blood sample from the blood bank's lab to use as a comparison. They were able to determine that her DNA matched the blood drops found in Thomas Capano's living room. Six weeks had passed since Anne-Marie's disappearance when detectives caught their next break. A project manager employed by Louis Capano Jr. called the FBI after hearing news of the investigation into Anne-Marie's disappearance. He reported that on July 1st, the Monday after Anne-Marie was last seen, his boss Lou, Tom Capano's brother, Had sent him to a construction site to have the dumpsters emptied. He'd found this curious, since they were not scheduled to be emptied for at least another week. In addition, he found it odd that when he got to the site, none of the dumpsters were full. Dumpsters were never pulled until they were full, he said, due to the cost. The dumpsters from the construction site were traced to a Delaware landfill. Over four hot August days, Searchers combed the landfill for any trace of the rug, couch, or anything connected to Anne-Marie. Nothing was found. Under oath, Lou Capano denied asking his project manager to dump the bins early. Eight weeks after Anne-Marie's disappearance, investigators were finally able to retrieve Tom Capano's cell phone records. They listed numerous phone calls to Debbie McIntyre. Upon interviewing Debbie, they learned of her long-term affair with Thomas Capano. Debbie was now living in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Investigators had already learned that Tom Capano's youngest brother, Gerard, or Jerry Capano, owned a boat that was docked in Stone Harbor. They also learned that Jerry Capano had a past criminal record, including drug possession. He'd also gotten into trouble for being in possession of unregistered firearms. It seemed that Jerry liked to collect guns. Acting on another hunch, investigators wondered if Jerry might have helped his brother get rid of evidence perhaps using his boat to dump incriminating items, or even a body, into the ocean. Their suspicions grew upon learning that Jerry had recently sold his boat and, after talking to the new owner, discovered that its anchors had been missing. Without a body or murder weapon, investigators had to continue to chip away at the evidence and painstakingly build a case against Thomas Capano, who they all believed was responsible for Anne-Marie's disappearance. Surveillance of Thomas and Jerry Capano continued for 11 months. In October of 1997, 16 months after Anne-Marie's disappearance, a raid was conducted on Jerry Capano's house by the FBI and the ATF, or the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. An arsenal of weapons was found in his home, including a gun located in his toddler's bedroom closet. The guns alone weren't illegal for Jerry to own, unless they were found in connection with illegal drugs the search did uncover both marijuana and cocaine in Jerry's possession. The feds leaned on Jerry now, telling him that he could be charged with both a felony firearms charge and child endangerment, among other charges. He was offered immunity to tell them what he knew about his brother's involvement in Fahey's disappearance. A month later, Jerry Capano walked into an FBI office and agreed to tell the story in exchange for immunity. Investigators had found no trace of Anne-Marie Fahey, except two tiny blood spots, but their dogged determination to find out who was responsible for her disappearance would now pay off. (music) The story Jerry Capano told began in February of 1996, four months before Anne-Marie's disappearance. That month, his brother Thomas Capano had come to him for help. Tom claimed he was being extorted by someone whom he did not name. He asked Jerry for cash and a gun. Jerry, who'd been helped several times in the past by his big brother, quickly agreed. Tom had used his connections a couple of times when Jerry had been facing jail time on drug charges and had gotten him out of a jam. Jerry had always looked up to his big brother, who was like a father figure to him. Tom told his brother he might also need the use of his boat someday. Jerry didn't ask any questions and simply told Tom he was happy to help him with whatever he needed. But some months later, Tom returned the gun to Jerry and said that the cash had been enough to handle his problem. Jerry was relieved. But then, on Friday, June 29th, Tom showed up at Jerry's house in the morning, asking for his help once more. He said he now needed to use the boat. Jerry, who said he still believed that his brother was trying to get rid of whoever was extorting him, immediately asked, did you do it? Tom answered yes. Jerry was alarmed and told his brother he didn't want any part of it. Tom kept at him, saying that he didn't have anyone else to turn to. He reminded him that he'd helped him out of trouble more than once and now was asking him to return the favor. Jerry finally gave in and Tom then asked him to meet him at his house. When Jerry arrived, Tom was in the garage. He asked him for help in moving a 40-gallon cooler into his SUV. He told Jerry they were going to take it out on the boat and dump it overboard into the seat. Tom also wanted to dispose of a large rolled-up rug that Jerry saw in the garage. Jerry told him it would not sink, so they left it behind. He drove out with Tom to Stone Harbor, where they boarded the boat. Tom had Jerry help him lift the heavy cooler into it. He instructed his brother to take the boat out into the open water. Jerry estimated that he drove the boat about 60 miles offshore before stopping. Jerry said he never saw the cooler open, but said it sounded like it might have been filled with ice. They both heaved the heavy cooler overboard, but it did not sink. Tom, beginning to panic, asked Jerry what he should do. Jerry grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun he kept on board that he sometimes used when shark fishing. He fired several shots into the cooler, hoping it would fill with water and sink into the ocean. But it still didn't sink. Tom said they'd need to retrieve the cooler and remove what he now admitted was a body. His plan was to wrap the boat's anchors around the body before dumping it into the water. At this, Jerry dug in his heels. He said he'd take no part in disposing of a body. You're on your own, Jerry said he told his brother. He then walked to the other side of the boat and kept his back to Tom. A few minutes later... Hearing a splash, Jerry asked if Tom was done. Tom said yes, and Jerry turned around a second too soon and witnessed a foot and ankle sink into the water. Jerry had heard his brother vomit while he was preparing to throw the body overboard. They then turned the boat back towards the shore. When they were still a couple of miles out, Tom removed the lid from the cooler and threw it and the cooler that was now full of bullet holes into the ocean. But Tom wasn't through needing Jerry's help just yet. When they returned to Tom's house, he took him into the living room. There, Jerry saw that the sofa had a large bloodstain on its back cushion, located about shoulder high. Jerry helped Tom load the sofa and the rug from the garage into his truck. They took both and disposed of them in the dumpsters on one of the Capano brothers' construction sites. On November 12th, Thomas Capano was arrested for obstruction of justice. Charging him with murder would still take time. Investigators had a confession after the fact, but still had to corroborate Jerry Capano's story. This would be difficult to do without a body, a murder weapon, or other physical evidence. When it was reported in the news that investigators believed the missing woman had been murdered and her body concealed in a cooler and dumped in the ocean, a fisherman contacted authorities to tell them of his find. On the 4th of July, 1996, he'd been fishing from his boat miles from Stone Harbor, When he found a large white cooler floating in the ocean. It was missing its lid and appeared to have several bullet holes in it. He didn't think much of this as people often shot at sharks while catching them. He thought someone was pretty careless to ruin a large expensive cooler like that and retrieved it. He replaced the lid, patched the holes and had been using it ever since. He took investigators to look at it and it was exactly as Jerry Capano had described. While investigators had provided the press with details about the cooler, they had not mentioned the missing lid or the bullet holes. With this piece of evidence, they could corroborate Jerry's account. The last bit of evidence they needed to charge Thomas Capano with the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey was supplied when they were able to match a barcode on the cooler with the purchase Tom Capano had made on April 22nd for the same size and type cooler at a local hardware store. Uh-huh. What about the murder weapon? Well, that puzzle piece fell into place when investigators found a record of a gun purchase made by Debbie McIntyre, Tom Capano's mistress, on may thirteenth nineteen sixty six McIntyre purchased a twenty two caliber beretta from a gun shop. At first, she denied buying the weapon, but once presented with the record of the purchase, she finally admitted that she had purchased the gun at the request of Thomas Capano. She had given him the weapon and had not seen it since Debbie said. Thomas Capano's trial began in October of 1998. The prosecution explained to the jury that Thomas Capano wanted complete control over Anne-Marie Fahey. It was their contention that when she broke things off with him, he began planning to end her life if she would not take him back. He made one final attempt on Thursday, June 27th, taking her out for a romantic meal and then to his home where he presented her a gift of an expensive outfit. Anne-Marie, wanting nothing more to do with Thomas Capano, refused his gift and told him she was through with him. Enraged at being rejected, Capano pulled out the gun and shot her in the head, killing her. He then placed her body in the cooler that was in his garage, possibly filling it with ice to keep it from decomposing too quickly. Picking up the bag of groceries he'd set aside for Anne-Marie, as well as the gift box with the Talbot's outfit and Anne-Marie's purse, he returned to her apartment He left these items in her apartment to make it look as if she had returned home that evening. He'd had to take her keys with him in order to lock the deadbolt to her front door before leaving. The next morning, he arrived at his brother's house to ask for help in disposing the body. Thomas Capano insisted on taking the stand in his own defense. His defense team told him this would be a mistake, but Capano, who believed himself to be a great attorney and who always did what he wanted, did so anyway. It was not a good strategy. Capano admitted only to disposing of Anne-Marie's body. In his version of events, he and Anne-Marie were still in a relationship. They'd had dinner that evening and were back at his house when Debbie McIntyre arrived unexpectedly. She'd become hysterical when she saw her longtime lover in the arms of another woman. She pulled a gun out of her purse and began threatening to kill herself. Capano claimed he had tried to take the gun away from her and in the struggle, it had fired, striking Anne-Marie in the head and killing her instantly. In order to protect Debbie, Capano said he had decided to dispose of Anne-Marie's body, which he now realized was a mistake. Well, the jury wasn't buying what Thomas Capano was selling. On January 17, 1999, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. It was the first time in Delaware history that a defendant was found guilty of a capital crime without a body. Upon handing down his sentence, Judge William Swain Lee called Thomas Capano, quote, a ruthless murderer who feels compassion for no one and remorse only for the circumstances in which he finds himself. He is a malignant force from whom no one he deems disloyal or adversarial can be secure, even if he is incarcerated for the rest of his life. Thomas Capano's conviction was upheld on appeal in 2008, but his case was remanded for sentencing because the death sentence had been imposed by a non-unanimous jury verdict. The state then abandoned its efforts to seek capital punishment, and Capano was resentenced to life without parole. Capano's appeals ended in 2008. Thomas Capano suffered from a serious case of colitis while in prison, an intestinal ailment. Using his illness as a reason, He often declined to appear in court. When he did appear, he was nearly unrecognizable. Prison life had aged him quickly and he'd also become obese. He died in prison of a massive heart attack in 2011 at the age of 61. Anne Marie's brother Robert Fahey asked a comment, said that Capano's death was quote, long overdue. Given that he never atoned for his sins, he never admitted he was guilty and he ruined many people's lives. My guess is that he went straight to hell, and that's where he belongs, Fahey said. Anne-Marie's family filed a wrongful death suit against Capano and his brothers for their part in the attempted cover-up of the murder. A memorial plaque was placed to honor Anne-Marie in Brandywine Park in Wilmington, at the spot where she most liked to visit. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. This was an extra long episode, but there are even more surprising details that I had to leave out if I was ever going to get this episode out on time. Before the murder of Anne-Marie Fahey, Tom Capano had stalked another young woman off and on for many years. He also tried to have some of the people connected to his murder case killed. I'll share those details in a supplemental episode to this case on Patreon. To join our Patreon for as little as $2 per month and get more content, ad-free episodes and more go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. If you'd like to read more about this case, I recommend Anne Rule's excellent book titled And Never Let Her Go. Don't forget to register for CrimeCon House Arrest. CrimeCon is coming to you with a full day of immersive interactive workshops, case discussions, and presentations by true crime personalities and experts. Special guests that have just been announced include Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz and Keith Morrison, Dr. Henry Lee, Paul Holes, and more. And you can visit Podcast Row, virtually, of course, for FaceTime with over 30 of your favorite true crime podcast hosts and creators, including me. It will all stream live on Saturday, November 21st. So you'll want to get your tickets now at crimecon.com slash house arrest. Also, I'm giving away a live only badge to CrimeCon house arrest, plus a Once Upon a Crime prize pack. Check out our post on Instagram for all the details and to enter. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.